Welcome to Electronically Yours with Martin Ware. Hi, it's Martin here, Electronically Yours as always. Today's guest is a very interesting guy, Daniel Hunt, who is the kind of brains behind the band Ladytron, who were very successful for a while in the 2000s internationally not just in the UK. Um, obviously, the name taken from the rock to music track Ladytron. Kind of one of the new, newish breeds of musical pop writers that had kind of female lead singers that emerged from the kind of dance scene. So it's kind of hybrid of that kind of dance thing plus traditional pop songwriting, plus this evolving penchant for female lead singers which uh, happened around about that time in the UK in particular uh, very nice guy he lives in Brazil we start the conversation with a few minutes of discussing the Brazilian election results which I personally am very happy about so the first five ten minutes are about the situation in Brazil I think you'll find it quite interesting I'll see you the other side of the chat here he is Daniel Hunt Well, like I was saying this to some people here because it's obviously it's been like the it's like the end of a cycle. It's been you know lasted eight or nine years, and um, and the relief here is obvious, you know. But outside, I was trying to explain to people here that I don't remember election an election where there was that much relief internationally. Mm. Um, certainly not in the global south. I mean, I think. Um, you know, regardless of what happened once he was in office, I, I, I guess when Obama won in 2008, um, it was a big relief and that was tied together with the anti-war movement and everything. But I don't remember an election in the, in the global South resonating like this. No. Uh, Listen, everybody, you know, has got a, a romanticised view of Brazil as being, you know, not only... Well, the narrative is for the last 20 years that it's one of the, you know, up-and-coming economic nations, which is, might be the case on a per capita basis, but it doesn't really translate to the average person. So I've been to Brazil with uh, my uh, the, the uh, charity that I work with called In Place of War. And... Um, I Sorry? No, I was just saying, uh, okay. All right. <laughs> and um, so I know a little bit, of, no, I don't know a huge amount about it, but when did you, I mean, you lived there permanently, right? Yeah, I, I moved here in, uh, just coming up to 10 years ago. Right. Uh, so the end of 2012, I think I got here in like New Year's Eve 2012. And uh, it was still... Well, it was still very much the country of the future, which it is, has been for a century, you know. Um, but it was still, um, it was still basking in this, um, in, in the kind of boom years that the first two Lula administrations and the beginning of the first uh, Dilma administration. Um, it, what was ha- what was about to happen? I arrived just before. Uh, things started to go strange. Um, 
And so about six months after I arrived is when suddenly there were these spontaneous, as they called them, uh, protests in June 2013. And um, I was petrified, to be honest, because it didn't make any sense. Um, even though there's you know, obviously massive inequality still, but um, Brazil was still in the best state it had ever been in. Right. Um, and it didn't make sense. And I was very skeptical of the of the protest. But a lot of people got pulled along with it. Um, you know, our, ourselves included, to be honest, initially, because we we everyone projected what they felt like onto these onto these protests right. in, in, in 2013. It was whatever was happening at a state level or a municipal level. Um, any grievance you possibly had with any level of governance. Um, so for about a few days, that was okay. And then suddenly, hold on, this has all been this has been turned into an anti Dilma Rousseff thing or an anti Workers Party thing, and and you know they turned it all into this kind of bogus anti corruption uh, narrative, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And we'd all put ourselves on the street. We were the bodies there. We were, we were the photos. We were the, the evidence internationally that everyone hates this government and it wasn't, wasn't true. So, so me, you know, all our friends, um, we left the streets pretty early as soon as it, as soon as it became obvious that we were being used, you know? Um, but then the protests assumed this, uh, the right and the far right saw this opportunity then. I'm and they, they went out and occupied this space, not just on the streets itself, not just physically, but this information space that had been created internationally. And that really, that really didn't stop until Bolsonaro was elected. Um, there were certain different currents in play and different forces that were maybe allied out of convenience. Um, it's the CIA. Let's face it, it's the CIA. You know it. Well, well, the thing is, the thing is, it's like it, 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 you, your first assumption would be this, but you know, the the longer it goes on, the more comes out. And so, the anti-corruption stuff was absolutely orchestrated by the U.S. And this is this this is in the public domain. It's not even secret. Even the Department of Justice have it on their own website. They were really quite proud of it when when Lula was prosecuted, for example. Uh, they 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 called it a success story of um, bilateral yeah you know, international intervention policing. Yeah. So so obviously after all this, it's you know it's been pretty traumatic. You know, I mean, especially you know because it, it started happening as soon as I got here, and and I thought for a moment maybe it was my fault, <laughs> but. It's so this, I mean, so this election, um, you know, it was something that I think amongst all this kind of, um, there's all this, you know, joy and relief internationally. But I think one thing that people um, maybe don't get is, is just how much Bolsonaro spent trying to buy the election. Um, I'm going to pause just for a second because I realise the dishwasher is making a beeping sound that's going to get rid of it. We like this local colour in the podcast. 
don't be chess. Okay, so all right, so back back to that thought. Yeah, the the amount of um, the amount that Bolsonaro spent trying to buy the election. Um, what we actually know is about fifty-four billion dollars. Holy shit! Where's he get that from? Well, he took it out of out of federal budgets. He he redirected money. Um, he also there was this 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 kind of secret budget thing going on as well, which started as a means to keep him in power to stop him being impeached. He was basically just it was just bribes, yeah, yeah. an enormous yeah. amount of money. Um, but that's separate. That's on top. I mean, just the, just the, you know, in terms of the campaign and um, uh, campaign promises, campaign funding and private donations, fifty-four billion U.S. dollars. Wow, um, that's so incredible. It, yeah, uh, one thing I, I'd noticed in the news uh, last week. Well, in fact, it was on Twitter, and I saw this, and I, I just went, "This is fucking science fiction." Um, they're actually coming out and admitting to this now. So the CIA have got a new branch, which they proudly call call the Narrative Police. Isn't that something just purely out of out of uh, like a science fiction novel from the eighties? It, like I mean, it's like what we what we've seen. What what what. You know, we've all observed happening over the last, you know, ten years or so of this. Because, uh, you know, especially with Twitter, you you see you see the narratives being moderated in real time, and you go, "Hold on." Um, I mean, we obviously saw it in the UK with with Jeremy Corbyn. Yeah, absolutely. Well, the, the interesting thing is that they've obviously decided it's cheaper and more efficient to uh, to change re- change the perception of reality than to change reality. Um, yeah, and that's dark. Let me put it that way. Uh, yeah. Anyway, so I'm, as yeah. you know, I'm a proper full-on socialist. I interviewed um, Corbyn for the podcast. I don't know if you actually checked it out. Yeah, I heard. Yeah, yeah, great. I met him actually out here the other day, last week, just before the election. Yeah, he was down here with um, with Progressive International, and um, Zara Sultana was here as well. Oh, brilliant. Um, yeah, so I think they, I think they had fun in Sao Paulo. Yeah, I mean, I look, and by the way, I don't, I make no apologies to the podcast listeners for talking about international affairs and politics for the first ten minutes because it's <laughs> great. It fucks off the right wing listeners who <laughs> who keep bugging me. Not many of them, but they're all they they just hate it. So uh, anyway, this is for you. Um, let's talk about <laughs> music then. Finally, yeah. Um, <clears throat> what inspired you to start Ladies Trump? Oh, right, let's go further back. What what has always inspired you about the direction of electronic pop music? Um, when did it start? Were, were you a kid? Were, were you a teenager? What is it? It's so it so it would have started when I was it would have started when I was a kid. Um, you know, when I was very, very young, but I then, I then went off into a kind of, um, you know, my first, first bands, first proper bands were like guitar, not proper bands, school bands were guitar bands. Um, but the, the electronics crept in, um, 
by default almost, you know, because it was my, my musical instincts were, were, were that. Um, what were your early influences in, in, in those kind of... Uh, in that well, kind I mean, of- you'll like this actually, because I remember it would have been... Um, so it would have been 1981. So I would have... I, I came back after Christmas, back, back to primary school, and um, was asked what my favourite band was. And so it had just been Christmas 1981. So I, I was, you know, I was what, like five or something like that. And I said, the Human League. Shut up. What immaculate <laughs> taste. And... <laughs> you know what? That's, they, that's they, not, that, that is it's wrong. True. It's true. And, and so the, 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 um, the teacher who asked us all, uh, took the piss out of me for it, and and I was basically shamed shamed for this. Uh, I don't know why, but um, it was you know, and I got you know little, I got given a little keyboard for for Christmas and whatnot and things like that. But the thing that actually um, the the formation of of what would become Lady Tron was because I started buying. Um, buying keyboards, analog keyboards in the early 90s. So, you know, when they were still cheap and there wasn't, wasn't quite this fetish attached to them, you know, when you, when you could go to a car boot sale or a charity shop and, and, and pick up, you know, I don't know, an MS-20 or, or something or other. Um, so I was, I was picking stuff up for like, you know, 20 quid here and there. Oh. But I didn't, have no, I didn't have any way to... To, to really record it or anything like that. I didn't have, um, it was, wasn't until, you know, at the end of the decade when, you know, digital recording became so accessible that I was like, oh, oh hold on, you know, I've got all this gear, but it wasn't bought, um, you know, it wasn't bought for the prices it's worth today for sure. But we also, we, we, were, we were lucky because in Liverpool there was actually a shop, um, there, was, there was briefly a shop for a couple of years called the Keyboard Corporation, right. probably from about 1992 onwards. And it just sold analog keyboards. And I'm pretty sure that I was the only, the only person ever in there. So it, it, it was unsurprising that it wasn't a, a success. But I, was, uh, I always wondered how they made their money. They had a cafe as well, actually, so that probably that took care of the bottom line. But it was just full of full of old gear, and when they shut down, they actually gave me a bunch of it. They gave me like you know this this big Krumar Stratus and stuff. It was just saying basically, you're the only person who ever came in here. You'll 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 enjoy this. Just take it. But in the meantime, at one point, um, another Sheffield connection actually. Um, there was a moment when uh, Pulp got all their gear robbed. I don't know about 1993, something like that. And um, I'd already got to know them. And I said, oh, yeah, there's this shop in Liverpool. So they actually came and, and replaced all their, all their gear at the shop in Liverpool. Um, as I say, yeah, it was, it was the availability of, um, of digital recording that made all this stuff useful. Um, yeah, but I'm still trying to get at why. What, what made you go down the route of, um, apart from the availability, but you could get cheap. It must have been like that in your soul. You must have thought that is those sounds are, are evocative of something. You know, you want to use the word evocative, but 
it was definitely it was there was there was a, an element that at that point as well not many people were were doing it if they were using keyboards it, you know it was it was for for house music or whatever yeah yeah, yeah. Um, there was a few people a few people doing it i mean the stereo lab were one of my favorite bands right you know in the 90s um you know adentox uh a little bit later pulp obviously were you know a lot of their sound was was, was this kind of gear um but when we actually popped up um because of the kind of the way we approached it i mean it was it was a lot of inexperience um and so when we actually popped up i think we we seemed quite alien to a lot of people and uh, there was a certain naive charm to it um it's become a very um, it's become a very uh common kind of palette of sound now with with oh, a yeah. singer as well that kind yeah. of it's very 2010s, I think. Uh, it, yeah. It, it's, it, and, and um, yeah, you you were quite early in that in that kind of uh, taste making uh, scenario. Well, I tell you, I tell you another thing, another moment you'll enjoy this as well, possibly even more. Um, we used to go and DJ at this. Well, I mean, I did parties in Liverpool, like you know, for years, but. With the band, we started getting invited to, to go and DJ elsewhere. We went down to the Trash Club in London, Errol Alcan's club, and played there a few times. Um, it was, and it probably would have been 2001. And I remember this moment where he played, the first time I heard the, you know, you know the start of this craze for mashups there was then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. So he played the the being scrubbed, which was being boiled with with no scrubs, right? So oh. that came on the dance floor, and I remember this moment where I just froze, looking at the dance floor and looking at the reaction to it, and I went, "This is what pop music's going to be like. Yeah, this is what actual pop music is going to be like soon." And it, and it was more or less the space of the neck. By the by, five or six years later, that's what it was. Um, mm. But it was it was funny. It was just literally just it was it was it was a uh, just this this moment, this epiphany. You know? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, um, um, interesting, because um, now I think that that um, transition into everything's pretty much electronic now, more you know, one yeah. way or another. But um, the idea that now guitars. Uh, obviously, this is still kind of rock in inverted commas, but I'm talking about mm. pop music now, the stuff that's generally successful. Yeah. Um, guitars are like a seasoning almost rather than the basic thing that we all work on. So it's <laughs> normally a drum machine or samples and electronics. Uh, and even the guitars are normally heavily processed anyway, and the vocals often. So, yeah. Exactly. We we we. I mean, we've always had a bit. We've always had a bit of guitar, and um, you know, varying levels of guitar. But as you say, most of the time, processed. And I remember one point we 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 did we did something, and there was there was no it was a track there was no guitars on it at all. But when we took it for mastering, I remember the mastering engineer said, "Oh, I'm going to boost uh, you know this frequency now to bring the guitars out a bit." And I was like, "There's no guitars on it." It's like, you what? <laughs> that's no guitars there, mate. Um, but yeah, I think it's there's, 
not not a purism. Um, you know, sometimes it's like you know you you throw a guitar through 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 an effects chain and you can get something you know that's impossible with anything else. I used to actually like trying to um, when we played live sometimes and go okay, well, I'm not going to take a guitar with me this time. I'm gonna I'm just going to have an effects chain that does it for me from the keyboard. And sometimes it sometimes it works. Um, I mean, I was talking yeah, to like, Richard Hawley the other day. Oh yeah. Uh, on the pod, on the pod, well, I say outside the podcast, and um, he was he, he he was talking to me about. Oh, he had this idea, this dream. He said, "Oh, you should do like a, a BEF thing, but called but for Sheffield called Sheffield Electric Foundation." And I said, oh, "That's quite a nice idea. We'll have to get." And then I sent him a text saying, "We'll have to get you playing guitar synth." And he went, "Fuck off." He's never gonna do that. It's not his thing. Actually, the, like a guitar synth, like a like a like a like a guitar or one of those guitar oh. synths. Remember those Roland guitar synths? That... Well, we used them a lot on the early um, uh, on the early M seventeen stuff. We it was oh okay. Stuff, so it was right. like it was kind of souped up Mutron, really, wasn't it? Uh, but yeah, yeah. actually, the guitar. I, interestingly, I was trying to find out because uh, I'm sponsored by Roland, and uh, and um, I went down to their demo studio. I said, "Have you got any new guitar since this was about you know eighteen months ago?" And he said, "Not really. There's not really." I said, "There's nothing really changed in the last twenty five years," because the problem with it always was latency. So playing something funky and with good timing was always an issue you know and i thought god you'd think that the technologists would have come up with a different solution for translating the articulation of guitar uh string playing into synthesizers a bit more accurately now i think i think also roland and korg it took them a long time to to respond to the appeal of these instruments as well um to understand what people liked about them um like back in the day we had like little like, like a little sponsorship deal with with roland and one with korg as well at various points and with roland they had a philosophy that they wouldn't would not recreate anything from the past at all it had to be a brand new instrument and then they might insert certain characteristics certain features of an old instrument but it was they were adamant that they wouldn't make any replicas of anything from the past. And Korg was slightly less strict about this at the time. They put out like these, these MS-2000s, which were not, not great, but they were kind of versatile and they were an entry point for a lot of people. Um, but we were begging them at that time. It was like, can you not just make an MS-20? Make yeah. an MS-20 completely normal and stick a usb port on it and it would be ubiquitous in studios it'd be like having a bass guitar in your studio everyone would have one and they they were they weren't into it but eventually they did it eventually they did it and now you've got all these little toys and all this other range but at that point it was um it was like they they hadn't really got what what, what we were all into um about well, these, I, I must about say these. that back in the back in the 80s um we used to, uh, because we weren't rolling in money uh, as well, but we used to actually sell the previous synth to buy the next one. Um, 
you know, which I sincerely regret now, I have to say. Like, why would I sell a Jupiter 4 to buy a Jupiter 8? It's no it, it sounds worse. I mean, it's got more functionality, you know, and, um, and so on and so forth. So I end up somehow in the mid-90s with a Roland JP8000, was it? Which was not great, to be honest. And I ended up swapping it with... Um, John Shuttleworth for one of his for one of his keyboards, you know, the comedian with the fun sounds. And uh, yeah, anyway, that's that story. But um, I, I do have two cents left. One is the Roland System 100, and the other one's the Cork 700S, which are both fucking amazing. Thank God I've still got them. I use them all the time. But do you have, what do you have now? Well, I managed when I moved out here. Um... I, I I left I left a bunch of stuff in Liverpool at my at, at my mate's studio, uh, and sold a few of things that that um that I shouldn't have like that. I was like, oh, you know, I'm never gonna. I, I don't have a case for it. I'm never gonna be able to bring this Juno Six over with me. I might as well sell it to you, you know. And even since then, the price has quadrupled. But yeah. over here, with what I've got actually in my studio, I managed to bring over like a Roland SH2. An MS20, um, this huge Krumar Stratus thing, which is kind of limited in usefulness, but I really like it. Um, a Pro One, nice. um, and a couple of little bits and little bits and pieces, drum machines and whatnot. Six oh six and uh, um, the old, um, the old uh, Korg Electribe. Um, oh yeah, that's and I, I I I broke a golden rule though. I bought one of the one of the Behringers. I know oh. I know that the I know that a lot of people don't don't like this, but I bought the PolyD because there's never been a polyphonic mini move before. It's something that didn't exist, and um, so I haven't used it much yet. But I just I just like the idea so much of of of, of, of having a polysynthesis sound of like that. Um, but yeah, I left a lot behind, like some, some, um, you know, quite exotic stuff, like, um, like a clavioline. Oh, uh, I've got one of those, um, but that's still sitting in Liverpool as well. Um, clavioline, like old, old organs and stuff. Some of the, some of the keyboards we used on the first, on the first record, sitting in my mate's studio but i figured that, that you know it's better that they're there than than sold or whatever at least he can use them and whoever uses the studio can oh, use exactly. them. so tell um, me about the start of uh ladies tron how did that come about what's the precursor to that how did it, how did it all fall into place well we started like I, well as i say when when i, when I suddenly had uh, i think i had like um like a cracked you know, I got like a, a crack downloaded version of Cubase because uh, there was a studio. We used to run 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 parties of me and a few friends in Liverpool. And we had like like this office where um, I made a kind of like makeshift studio in there. But there was um, there was a house producer who was ne who, who next door, Dan Evans, and um, I used to go in and he basically taught me how to how to use this stuff, how to record this stuff. 
Um, and it was also that time at, like in Liverpool, a kind of Scouse Peak Scouse House, you know, and, and our <laughs> office was on Slater Street, right, right by Cream and everything. And even though I, I when I was DJ and I was playing, um, I was playing Northern Soul and stuff mostly at that point. And you know, I was, I was playing sixties music, but I was being influenced subliminally by the by the Scouse House. Um, so that might have might have sent me more disco than I actually knew. Um, but when I, when I finally had, you know, had my hands on my own little system, like I bought, when, when they first put out those G3 Macs, um, and I could suddenly, suddenly do all this stuff. And I worked with a, with a couple of singers, you know, pre-Lady Tron, I worked with a, with a couple of singers and, um, and then it wasn't until, it wasn't until, um, I met Helen and Mira. Uh, Helen was at, at, at university in Liverpool, and um, and Mira was recommended to me by a by a friend, like a, a German music journalist, a friend in London. She was going, oh, I, I, you know, recommended her as someone who might want to be in the band, you know. So we ended up with this four piece lineup. Uh, Ruben was used to DJ at our parties and stuff. Um, so it wasn't until it was the four of us, even though like we'd done, you know things with guest singers and bits and pieces. It wasn't until the four of us that Lady Tron was a thing. Um, and we, you know, we went ahead, we made a, like a, we released one single and then a Japanese label gave us uh, a bit of money to make like a, like an, like an EP, like a six track EP, um, which most of that ended up on a first album. Right. Uh, it was, in, but it was. This was like pre, just pre MP3s and Napster. So when it was the idea, oh, we'll just release that in Japan and that'll stay there. Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> that 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 ship had sailed about six months later. Um, but the 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 interesting thing was this convoluted way we'd done it, and we we we, stay, we consciously stayed away from London as well. We didn't want to. Um, we didn't want to play the game or get involved very much. We liked the fact that we'd stay in Liverpool, but then we would go and play in some abandoned bank in, in Berlin, or we'd go and play a bowling alley in Paris or whatever. And, and, and London was going, well, hello, can you come and just play a proper gig for us? And we never would. Um, and we quite liked that. Uh, but then because we'd done it this convoluted way, um, the, our first like, like proper deal was with this label called Emperor Norton in, in, in the United States. And the A&R there, Steve Pross, he, he, you know, had a big history and you know, he used to run labels that um, released like post-punk stuff in the U S and whatever. And he'd been through the major labels in the eighties. He signed all kinds of things. And then he, he finally had his own label. He was very much, uh, you know, doing whatever he wanted to do. And he he discovered us because he was really into, like, J-pop at the time. Right. Yeah. So basically, he got this Japanese EP thinking that we were a Japanese band. It was like, oh, this uh, band's called Lady, Ladies Trans, one of my favorite, favorite songs, early Roxy music, you know, everything else. So he actually got hold of us that way and then discovered who we were and he got in contact straight away. And it was... It was kind of, it was a really serendipitous timing because 
we'd actually had like Warners chasing us with what would have been a catastrophic deal if we'd signed signed it. We probably would have been over. We might not have even made an album. You know, I don't know. But um, this guy from from Warners had been had been chasing us for a while, and that suddenly fell apart, and we didn't even have time to, you know. The smoke hadn't even cleared, and suddenly this email dropped in from from this label in LA, and and said he wanted to wanted to sign us and explained how he discovered us, whatever. So within a month or so, we were we were out there and we were signing to them, and we were we were putting our first album together. Um, so that that they, how much how much um, independence did they give you to create the album you wanted? Complete. Yeah, complete. Wow. Um, so that first album was like, we had this Japanese EP and we had a bunch of other stuff and um, it felt a little bit like a compilation the way it was put together. There were certain things on it which belong to the moment before the band existed. You know, that if, if you know, to be honest, if I looked at the album again, I'd take four songs off it. People, right. people complained it was too long anyway. And I, at the time I thought, but how can an album be too long? It's more music. You're you're paying for it, and you're getting more music. Yeah, you can. I, I believe in. I I believe that. Um, I'm a big believer because I came from the vinyl world. That I like forty minute albums. Yeah, me. I I agree. I completely agree. Now, now ten tracks. Ten tracks is it. Yeah. You know, I, there doesn't need to be any more. But at the time, we thought, well, if we don't release this, then maybe it'll never come out. Maybe people will never hear it. We have to put it all out. Nice. And so it was quite naive, but the, it was, to be honest, there wasn't really, um, we didn't tour that much with the first album. Right. It was very basic what we were doing. We were going out with our keyboards and a DAT machine those days. Uh, very basic. But we, you know, we did some festivals and whatnot. We didn't go to the States with it because we wanted to, we, you know, we've got to do another record and really get our, get our shit together, basically. So the, the second album, um, the American label, um, shaped the creation of that a lot because they they had an idea. Um, we had some, you had some suggestions of producers. I wanted Stuart Copeland to do it at one point. I was obsessed with the idea of Stuart Copeland doing it. <laughs> I don't think he ever even knew. But then the the American label came up with an idea, uh, which was we would go and record out there um, in in LA and. With Mickey Petralia, who had worked uh, with the BC Boys and Beck, and also with a bunch of people who were in and around Air at that point, they were in Air's live band: Roger Manning Jr., Justin right. Melville Johnson, um, and it was their idea that, and and yeah, they obviously saw us. We were kids, you know, and they they thought, okay, if we put them, we bring them close to our office, and we have all these experienced people around them, you know, it's going to really help, and it did. Um, so, so yeah, I think we finished that, yeah, that once we finished that second album, maybe June, 2002, and that's when things, um, things took a serious step up then it was, cause we were on a different label in the UK, you see, we were in, we were on Telstar, which was, right. a, which was a weird, very weird place to be. Um, that was, a, that, um, when, a Telstar used to be a, when we were, um, uh, when they were talking about releasing our stuff, when we stopped selling yeah. much, it was the, the threat was always it was going to come out on Telstar. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
well, we we thought, you know, and we'll basically do it. Certain things. It was like there was some like hip labels out at that point who were um, doing things along the lines of what we were doing. But Telstar had there was a certain perverse appeal to it. Um, firstly, because because of Joe Meek, the name of the label. This was the kind of reasoning that was going on. Also, because didn't I thought that they used to do those compilations? No, in the eighties, that was a K-Tel, whatever. Yes, yeah, yeah. so, so that was, you know, so that was another perverse attraction to it. But also, they had this band Mystique, this incredible R and B band on, and yeah. like I was like, oh, we'll be label mates with them. It'll be amazing. And um, so we went with that, and it was it was funny because in in the US we were like. Um, it was college radio. They were building on what we'd done from the first album. They knew where our audience was, et cetera, et cetera. But in the UK, they didn't know anything else. It's just pop band. You know, they just put us out there as a pop band, looking and sounding like we did, which is, you know, with hindsight, is actually pretty funny. Um, but it was, you know, it, it worked in its own way as well, having these two very different labels, especially because the markets were were converging as well, because... You know, everything was internationalizing. It wasn't like, um, you know, what we were doing in the States would have repercussion in the UK, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so, but then they went, I think they they went, uh, yeah, they went bust just at the start when we were doing our third album, Telstar. Right, right. So, so we were back just on Emperor Norton. Uh, right. Go, okay, fine, we'll just carry on with the record. And then Emperor Norton got sold. Um, so we were basically left in a weird situation because Emperor Norton got sold, get this, because our album, our second album, like Magic had done, had done well, um, we basically, the label turned a profit wow. and that wasn't allowed because the label was funded by the Getty Foundation. And so as soon as it turned a profit, so wow. we... We basically we basically killed it, and they said, "Oh, we're going to have to sell the label now because it was that label was supposed to be losing hundreds of thousands of dollars. You know, it was it was supposed to be a folly, you know, in a way. And as soon as it as soon as they they turned it into something profitable, the foundation didn't want to didn't want to have it anymore. I know. So so that was all pretty funny. Um, but yeah, this yes, there was a lot of label shenanigans along the way. But Emperor Norton was. I mean, that was the best place to be. We could do whatever we want, whatever we wanted. We, you know, they, they, you know, didn't have an enormous amount of money, but they'd normally get us what we needed to do what we wanted to do. Um, they seemed to just make the right choices all the time, you know, because labels in general, they just fuck up, don't they? You just spend your whole time going, why did, why did you do this? Why did you do that? We had quite a good relationship with Virgin, I have to say, but that oh, really? was a bit sour later on. But as right. a, you know, I mean, how long is a band meant to last at the top? I don't know. Not many uh, people yeah. last at the top. Um, let's move on to. Um, so uh, this is kind of mid Lady Tron career, isn't it? So tell us about the rest of the, the uh, of the journey. Um, well, we did. So this. The third album we did, uh, which you know we did with, we recorded with Jim Abbott, and this is the one that was the 
the creation of it was was impeded by the the labels going kaput. And we were basically with this half finished album, and we had to do a new deal. We ended up signing to to Ireland. Um, but that album was the moment when it felt like we realized we didn't really need the label anymore because um, we'd go out on the road and 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 the album had its own life. It didn't really seem to depend on the label anymore. And it was that point of that, that change in the industry when, you know, music online, you know, found its own critical mass. Um, and your live, your live performances, were, they, were you uh, earning, I mean, was, were, were they very successful? Were you doing well in America, in Europe, in the UK? Well, that was, that was it. That was the point when suddenly shows started making money. And uh, especially in the US, I mean, like, like we did something. It was, I think the, the tours for which now we did two, two or three US tours for it, North American tours. And um, they'd sell out in, in hours. Mm. Um, so, it, and, and we, we realized we weren't dependent on the label so much. So I don't know because before then I I don't think we saw any money from from shows for the first two albums. It just seemed to all evaporate. Um, but yeah, there seemed to be that point where, well, everyone's income was was um, was moving towards live, which is which of of course is not sustainable. We can't all be on the tour on tour forever especially when every other band in the world is on yeah. tour at the same time. So there was a, yeah, there was a moment when everyone was just kind of resigned to not making any money from records anymore. Remember? And, yeah. and it was, it was like, okay, well, you'll, you'll just make money from live. And it was like, yeah, but are we ever going to be able to go home? <laughs> um, but for those albums, like we, we, we then signed to um, network, which was a good label. Um, is a good label. Uh, we did two albums with them, um, and we kind of, by that point things were quite comfortable. So we did Velos Velos of Pharaoh in two thousand and eight, and Gravity Distribution in two thousand and eleven, and things were. Uh, we did like a like a kind of best of compilation with them as well, but the, at that by that point things were quite comfortable, and we were we felt very in control of things. Um, there wasn't, you know, so much left to chance anymore. Right. Um, and then we took, well, then we took a big long break, and we all moved all over the place. Ruben moved to Chicago. I moved down here, Sao Paulo. Um, and we we thought, all right, we'll take, you know, we'll take a couple of years off. But it ended up being like seven years. Um, right. <laughs> so a lot happened in the meantime. Um, and as as you say, a lot of the things that we were we were doing at the beginning, by the time we we came back, it was you know these this is you know regular pop music is using using this sonic palette, you know. But um, it was actually an opportunity having that like break was a moment when we could basically just hit reset. So we we it's like what are we going to do now? We're going to make a laser on album. That's it. It's a, it's eponymous. There's no kind of uh, arc of progression over the over the first five albums. We don't have to even think about that. It's just we start from scratch and make a laser run record. 
Which, uh, which album of yours are you most happy with? Um, I think in it, 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 it depends because you know what you know what it is. It's like not not necessarily musical. It's 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 everything else attached. Like the second album was this kind of moment when, um, <clears throat> as I say, we were being like sold as a pop band in in the UK. We were protagonists in this wave of electronics, new electronic stuff that was coming out, even though we were kind of reticent to be associated with anyone else. We didn't really like that. Um, I think the third album, which now I, I enjoyed the way it was received because I felt like we were being taken more seriously by people who, who hadn't necessarily taken us seriously before. So that was, that was a kind of step. Um, I think the fourth album is, it's, a, it's very, very solid. Um, but out of the two, I think, I think which now is, is I, I think I prefer it. Um, I think I prefer it. And also there's so many, we did so many shows for which now it was like, we were, it was like a world tour for two years. So there's oh, so many memories I attached to it. never do that shit. I'm sorry. I'm going insane. We just did our first ever American tour with M17. I saw, yeah. How'd that go? It nearly killed me. I mean, I'm fucking 66, man. This is no joke. You know, um, we did 15 dates in 23 days. Coast to coast, you know, it's too much. Anyway, uh, it's not about me. Um, I need to ask you about your remixing career because you've done fucking hundreds of them and some incredibly famous people that you've uh, that you've been uh, that you've managed to get remix work for. I mean, obviously, you were doing some incredible stuff. Have you ever put a compilation of your remixes together? No, I think someone said that they were gonna uh, they were gonna make like a playlist of them or something like a like a Spotify playlist. But I hadn't really thought about it to be honest. I'm not sure how many of them are actually on on the platforms. But um, there's a couple that didn't that actually to, to be honest, it's 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 criminal. But there's a couple that didn't come out, um, which really should have. Um, one of one of the ones we did for Blondie came out, I think. Um, but I did another one. I did one of uh, Fade Away and Radiate as well. I love that song. Yeah, and so so that was the one I liked most. But I don't think this came out. I think it, I think I might have had it on SoundCloud or something. But the other one we we actually we did. I think we did um, uh, Roxy Music as well. Um, if there was a Roxy Music remix album we got asked to do, uh, and I think I did. Um, I had a few songs. I had Mother of Pearl. I had wow. the separates for them all. I don't think any of those mixes came out, but I was like, hold on, those those separates, those Roxy separates, have got to be on the drive somewhere. I can't find them. Oh, but I had Mother no. of Pearl, Every Dream Heart, Every Dream Home, My Heartache, later on, obviously. Oh, actually, talking about Blondie, the the, the um, fade away and radiate. Um, the separates was super interesting, and it's another thing I've, I've got to find them somehow. But um, one of the channels in in the in the in the in the separates were was just labeled um, 
crispy V's. Um, but no, it was actually it was actually the demo of his guitar, you know, Clem on drums and him wow. singing. Basically, wow. the demo of the song that, that the entire recording was built on top. Um, and it was amazing. It sounded like the Velvet Underground or something. Uh, <laughs> I was like, listen, it's like no one's ever heard this. And God knows the band probably doesn't even remember doing it, you know. Wow. Um, but yeah, unfortunately, that's that's probably on some crash drive somewhere as well. I love that. But yeah, remixes. Um, yeah, done a, yeah, did a load. I mean, I haven't done that many, you know, recently. It's like, um, I mean, if you do them now, they're normally swapped. You know, it's like, um, um I did. I did. I think the last one I did was Erasure, actually, a couple of years ago. But I've I've been doing some bits and pieces of production for people and and things like that. Um, you, not had really, a, you had an album out recently, right? Um, Light and Magic, was it? That was that was actually a, that that was an anniversary. The second album. Oh, was that it? Was like, oh, okay. It was well. It it, it it was wasn't really a reissue. It was just like an anniversary. But um, no, the new album is Times Arrow, and that's coming out in January. But oh, uh, we just let's plug it. Let's yeah, plug it. yeah. So the first single uh, came out two weeks ago, uh, City of Angels. So the album is yeah, the album's late January, and then we're going on tour in um, in the UK in March. Oh, cool! Uh, so yeah, we do not not Sheffield, not Sheffield this time. We've got um, there's. At the moment, we've got we've got um, uh, a drummer, uh, Pete Kelly, from Glasgow, um, and he played on the on the last album tour with us as well. We've been through quite a few good drummers. Uh, that was the big difference, actually. The first tour and the and the second first album tour and the second is um, we got live drums in, and right. um, we had a live bass player as well. We had. That, that second tour, second album tour, we had Keith York, who'd been in um, been in broadcast before, uh, and a load of other things. I'd known him from Liverpool back in the day, like when I when I was at school. He was in that band, Doctor Fives in the House of Wax Equations. Remember them? <laughs> Good name. Um, but yeah, we're, so we're going out. We've basically got to put the uh, put the the this show together now. We're, we're working on this now. Um, but we start in Glasgow. Uh, nice. Start in March. Do Glasgow, Liverpool, and London. Um, just three. That's how we how we do it now. We do three three shows, three UK shows, but vary the vary the cities a little bit oh, uh, cool. for the same reasons as you <laughs> you, you described. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's actually insane. Uh, you did a bunch of computer game music as well, didn't you? We got used on we got used on a bunch of stuff, uh, a bunch of electronic arts uh, games, and it's funny because those have a hell of a lot of reach. Like people, people show up at your shows and they say, "Yeah, like you know, I first heard you guys in on oh, Need Need for Speed Four, you know, or yeah, yeah. FIFA, all the football games as well." And they're you know, really really popular, and and you know, there's like. Um, I noticed there's like Spotify playlists of the music that was on them and all this kind of this kind of stuff. But we we did some music um, specifically for um, the Sims. We did like um, some original music for the for the Sims, one of the Sims games. Right. Um, 
where the, the lyrics had to be translated into Singlish and stuff like that. So there's a bunch of that stuff um, floating around, yeah. And have you done, a, done a, couple, a proper film score ever? Yeah, I've done, done, um, done one full one and a couple where I've, I've contributed like bits and pieces. Um, I'd like to do more of this, to be honest. It was a really good experience. Um, yeah, me too. I want to do it. No one's ever fucking asked me. Can't believe well, it. That's, that's, it's, it's kind of annoying when people go, you should do more of that. It's like, yeah. well, it does kind of depend on people asking me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's uh, we did we did um, yeah some bits and pieces. Some some some. There's actually some films that feel like we did the score, but we didn't. Like um, uh, where they've used like four or five of our songs. Um, uh, this film Mammoth by uh, Lucas Moodison. Uh, um, I think yeah, like I think four at least four of the songs. Um, and the last one I did, uh, I worked on was was a film called um, Agony with um, Azure Argento a few cool. years ago. Um, but yeah, let's do it. Let's let's do one together, man. Let's Come just on, sort yeah. it out. I'm relying <laughs> on you to provide the hot lead. <laughs> <laughs> nobody's, okay, believe me, nobody's beating a path to me I can't believe I've done like 130 fucking podcasts saying I'd like to do a film score on one single fucking inquiry it's a recurring theme then okay yeah, yeah. <laughs> anyway on that nice. bombshell we'll get into the um, smash hits type questions at the end which are always illuminating if daft um, what's your favourite TV show uh, oh, in the in the present day or ever? Any any time, past, box set, present doesn't make any difference to me. Uh, you, well, you know what I've been watching. I, I watched again recently was Our Friends in the North. Oh yeah, yeah, that was really good actually. Yeah, it's and I, and I appreciate it far more than I did you know twenty five years ago whenever it came out. Yeah. Um, it's yeah. It's, I mean, I. It's my, I mean, the cast is just, it's, it's bizarre. If you, if you told, if you explained to someone, oh, this is this, there was this show in the 90s and this is what it was about and this was the cast and list, people would just think you were taking the piss now, you know. That's right. Um, so, so that showed up, that showed up on, on, on iPlayer recently. Uh, I, I watched all that again. Um, it's so, it's so difficult because we, I mean, you know, if there's just a go-to thing, if I'm just gonna like, you know, what I've got nothing to nothing to do. There's nothing on TV, and I'm 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 barely gonna watch it anyway. I'll just stick Seinfeld on. Yeah, <laughs> you know, it's after all these years. Um, favorite film? I think I know what it is. Is it The Andromeda Strain? It was. It's definitely was. It it definitely was one of one of mine at the beginning. Um, yeah, definitely at the beginning, but uh, oh god, uh, this is this is going to be difficult. I'm mean, just one of them, you know. I'm not. It's not an example. A lot of, a lot of films. A lot. Of, yeah, a lot of water under the bridge. Now, you know what? No, okay. Here we go. Here's my favorite film, After Hours. Martin Scorsese with Griffin Dunn and Rosanna Arquette. Do you know, I don't. Scorsese, no one seems to talk about. That doesn't never, have any gangsters. I've never seen it. I've never seen it. I don't think. It's strange because I I I hadn't heard of it until a couple of years ago. 
I went down this kind of rabbit hole of um, of looking at films that Griffin Dunn had, had, had done, um, aside from American Werewolf in London, and and, and I found this after hours, which what what he did immediately um, after that. And it's like Scorsese, but it's like this Scorsese that no one seems to talk about. Now everyone, everyone I know who's involved with film or went to film school or whatever, they go, nonsense, everyone talks about After Hours. It's like I'm a not, staple. I've never, never heard it. It's incredible, man. It's incredible. Um, it's one of the, it's, it's, it's uh, probably, I'm not sure what it did. I think it was always kind of a cult film. Probably, yeah, it, it was probably the kind of thing that, you know, uh, if you were going to see it on TV, it would have been something Alex Cox would have put on, you know, back in the uh, day. Yeah, yeah. But I'd literally never heard of it. It's incredible. Brilliant. Uh, so okay. There you go. You've got a definitive favourite now. Yeah. Brilliant. Um, book. Oh, book. Where do we start? <laughs> Where do we start? Um, uh, I'm actually, okay, rather than have a favourite because it's impossible, I'll tell you what I'm reading at the moment, okay. and that's uh, The Lathe of Heaven by Ursula Le Guin. Oh, great. Yeah, I know that book. Yeah, it's beautiful. Um, okay, Unfulfilled Ambition. Hi. Um, okay, so in terms of, all right, generally, uh, off the top of my head, Nothing, but in terms of the band, in terms of the band, there was going to be, um, we were booked uh, about, I don't know, 10 years ago or more uh, to open for Pet Shop Boys at the Hollywood Bowl. Right. And the entire show got cancelled, the tour got cancelled. Um, but what we wanted to do, um, Helen was wanting to sing uh, um, the duet of, of um, Dusty Springfield, the What Have I Done to Deserve This, you know? And, uh, and so it was like we, we'd imagined it all and then the entire show got cancelled. So it's it, this thing that keeps coming back up, whenever I, I see or hear something about the Pet Shop Boys, I remember this Hollywood Bowl show that didn't happen and this, uh, this collaboration. I don't know, maybe it'll happen. Yeah, yeah. Um, give your own work are you happiest with? Um, well, at the moment, at the moment, I'm quite happy with the with the new record. Um, I, I'm happy with how the new single's been received because um, it 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 sort of ticks all the boxes for me. I'm, you know how it is when when music sounds different as soon as you release it, right? And right. You've, you've been in the studio with it, you've gone through all the stages, you've gone through all the mixing, you've gone through all the mastering, but somehow when it's actually released, it sounds different. And yeah. I used to think that it was, I used to think that it was the radio. That's what I used to say. Oh, it's on the radio. It's the compression. It makes yeah. it sound better. It makes it sound like I, like I hit record or whatever. But nowadays, because we're not listening on the radio and a certain, the same kind of thing happened with this single as soon as it was actually released, as soon as it was launched, you know, other people were listening to it and other people were talking about it. It sounded subtly different to me. And I, I conclude, I've got a theory here. I've got a theory that it's actually superposition theory. It's basically 
electrons behaving like waves and vice versa, depending on people observing them. So, um, so this is what this is uh, the only way I can, the only, the only, not, not being a qualified scientist, something happens to music when it's, when it's released, it's in the public domain that makes it sound different to, to the originator. Uh, wow. and, and this is my only explanation for it thus far. Okay. Anyway, okay. Uh, but yeah, I'm happy with the new album. Uh, it's right. a good, a good uh, one no, for looking, sure. Looking forward to it. Um, <laughs> I'll get you a copy. Oh, thank you. Um, other musical artist or composer? Ooh. Um, again, any 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 era. Um, top of my head, Lee Hazelwood. Oh, I see. Some Velvet Morning. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um visual artist. Do you do you like visual art? Yeah. Um yeah. Or aside, um I guess this I, I, I like to I used to well I, I still do, but um uh my wife's a like a like a an artist and she got me onto Mauricio Catalan years ago. Um, right. but, uh, probably honorable mention to Ruben Wu, uh, my, my, uh, bandmate, oh. uh, he's doing rather well in this field at the moment. <laughs> That's great, man. I'm happy with that. Okay. Final question. What is your favorite synth? I think, um, I think I'd have to go with um so the first proper mono synth i got um was a uh, roland sho9 um Good. so i'd have to stick with that one i'd have to stick with that one even though the sh2's got another oscillator and it's better i'd have to go with the 09 Perfect. And do you still and that's, have- that's not basically every it's on basically everything every latest on record ever so is it and you still have that, do you? Yeah, I've got two two oh nines and the and the SH two as well. Really, uh, more or less on everything. Well, Daniel, have a brilliant day in the bright new land that is Brazil. Yeah, post Bolsonaro. Everyone still it hasn't sunk in. To be honest, it hasn't sunk in. Everyone's still, you know, everyone's still it's celebrating. A, be- a beacon of hope for, for the that. left in the world. To be honest, so. Fingers crossed it translates into something better in Europe at the moment. Um, And it's been a joy talking to you. Thank you so much. Have Have a fantastic day. Cheers. Thanks a lot, Martin. All right, man. Cheers. Bye. Well, that's Daniel, lovely guy. Very interesting career path, I suppose. Um, seems pretty happy living in Brazil now, particularly as everything's kind of rinsed out a bit. Um, how is everyone today? Heading towards Christmas. It's an accelerating rate. If you want to pass any comments on the podcast or um, you know, give us some kind of moral support or any ideas for the podcast, guests or sections, please let me know. 
that would be great on electronicallymartin at gmail.com or consider uh, subscribing to the patreon.com page which is patreon.com stroke electronically hours and you can help keep this going uh, independent and free from advertising thank you for your attention another amazing guest next week bye Um, this is from Guy Lovelady. Just finished your Mark Radcliffe cast. David Yorkie Palmer, Palmer would be a real boon to have on. He incubated the Liverpool 80s scene. He supported Gave Home to the Bunnymen, Teardrops at the Right Time, Integral Part of Space, and Produced Shack. Full of great stories, super nice way. I shall definitely consider that. Thank you. Uh Butt. I've been listening to your wonderful podcast series and thoroughly enjoying it. You've had some truly wonderful and interesting guests. Currently listening to the Paul Oakenfold one. I wanted to provide a few suggestions for future conversations. Sean Johnston of the Mighty Alphos Parties, Richard Sen, Justin Robinson of the Deathstock 33s, Al McKenzie of D-Ream fame, Darren Emerson, formerly of Underworld, Carl Hyde, I'd love to get Carl Hyde on, of Underworld, Josh Wink, Philadelphia's finest. Carl Hyde, any ideas how to get to Okay, Phil, 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 just Phil. Uh, uh, it's probably not Phil, okay. Um, Hi, Martin. I've been meaning to write to you. Having just listened to the Scanner episode, I feel compelled to finally put fingers to keyboard. Listen to all the podcasts apart from the Corbyn one. Not for any partisan-driven reasons, just don't, don't want to listen to politicians in the early hours of the morning. Fair enough. That aside, these podcasts are really great. I've grown to appreciate the two blokes, lasses in pub style of interview. It was different at first, but after a few episodes, it became apparent to me at least, this is a really cool way to conduct the interviews. It immediately puts the guests at ease, which then translates into a more convivial experience. Exactly. Up until now, I never really thought I had a favourite episode. They've all been great in their own way. Selection of guests is the USP for this production, in my opinion. Obviously, there have been many that I have known and that I have been a fan of at some point, but there have also been many podcasts with people I did not know existed. No offence meant to those I have not yet experienced. Having just listened to Scanner episode, I can now say that this is one of, if not the, favourite. I've not really heard of him in any detail, and, and now, as I write this, I am listening to and enjoying the, his music. The smash hits section are fun, and I know they are popular, and I look forward to that bit also. However, what really pricks my interest is the little clips of music that you insert here and there. I am a synth head and producer, and these little snippets of sonic quirkiness I find brilliant. Can you tell us a bit more about them? Well, they are largely created by my uh, engineer and co-producer of the podcast, um, Chas Stook. Uh, written and performed by him. Some of them are by me and some are by my son, Gabriel Ware. Um, we are going to compile them into a playlist. I've asked him a couple of times. I'm hoping he's getting on with it. Chaz, get on with it. 
I'm particularly touched by the music you played at the outro of the Scanner episode. That wonderful and transcendent violin piece was gorgeous. I think that's Gabriel's piece, actually. He's a really good composer. To wrap it up, thank you, Martin and team, for taking the initiative back in those darker times and providing such wonderful entertainment and insight into our electronically sonic world. That's really kind of you. Thank you, Phil. You know, encouragement from guys like you keep me doing it, essentially.